So I was driving my kids to school this morning, and as I was on the way there, uh, they wanted to listen on Spotify to the, uh, the Robin Hood soundtrack. You guys know the old Robin Hood Disney movie with uh, Robin Hood and Little John? We're walking through the forest. So, Udalati, Udalati, you guys know the song? Okay, so it's on Spotify. They really wanted to listen to it. So we're listening to that on repeat, driving to school this morning. Leo's trying to remember the lyrics. We, I dropped them off, and then... Um, Spotify does this auto-play thing, and so it builds this playlist out of Robin Hood, which the first song after the Robin Hood playlist was Avid Brothers. It's like, oh, connection, I see there. And then um, some other bands I haven't heard of, and then this, this song by a band called Mandolin Orange, which is a North Carolina band, and the song was called Golden Embers. The song came on, and it's a song that's written by the, the lead singer, this guy Andrew Marlin, after his mother died. And it's a song about loss and about this longing that he has to connect with his dad and their grief. And this one line caught my attention where it says, loss has no end. It binds to our connection. We don't speak of it. We don't even try. Loss has no end. It binds to our connection. And the song is Marlon's plea. It's his plea to his father. I read an article about it in Pace Magazine today. And it's his plea to his father to crack, for his dad to actually break and to, to be honest in his grief so that they can, they can share the weight of this together. Uh, in the song, he says, you've got burden in you, and you can help me. In our time together, her memory will ever shine like golden embers. And it's this, this really powerful, honest song about grief and sadness and loss. And I watched the music video for it, and uh, it led me to tears, which... Um, music videos don't usually do uh, it, it because it is such an honest exploration of loss. And so I tell you that story because tonight, as we look this semester, we've been looking at questions from Jesus, and the question that Jesus has for us tonight um, is one that he asks. He asks Mary Magdalene. Uh, he says to her, "Why are you weeping? Why are you weeping?" So I'm going to read for us. This is from John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. It's on the screen. It's also printed in the bulletin if you want to follow along there. This is God's word for us tonight. It is completely true, and he gives it to us in love. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one of them at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Um, Outline for tonight is on the back of your bulletin, and uh, we're going to have two points this sermon. First, the trauma of loss, this question, why are you weeping? And then second, Jesus' answer to our tears how Jesus gives himself to us in the resurrection. So first, the trauma of loss. 
Why was Mary weeping? So let me set the scene for, for us here. It's Sunday morning. On Friday, uh, the Friday two days before, Jesus was abandoned by his friends. He was put on trial. He was falsely convicted. He was brutally beaten. He was mocked. He was spit on. And then he was hung up naked to die on a cross as a criminal. And after he died, one of his friends, this man Joseph of Arimathea, took his dead body, embalmed it, and laid him in his tomb, in Joseph's tomb. And his tomb, Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man, and so his tomb was a rich man's tomb, which was, it was carved out of stone, and then it had this particular rock, this round, like a giant wheel stone that was rolled in front of the tomb. And that was there to prevent the grave robbers from coming in. So the stone would have been rolled in front and set and sealed um, to prevent people from tampering with the tomb. So the beginning of chapter 20, it's Sunday morning, it's still dark, and we're told that Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb to anoint Jesus' dead body with oils and spices to finish the embalming process. And she doesn't go on Saturday because Saturday was the Sabbath and no one worked on Saturday, so Saturday they rested. And so she goes before daylight on Sunday morning. And she arrives at the tomb and the stone has been rolled away. And so she runs back to where she was with the disciples And she tells them, she tells John and Peter, and so John and Peter run to the tomb ahead of her. They look in, they see that the body is gone, and then they leave. And then we have verse 11. Mary arrives, and she stands there weeping outside of the tomb. She's left alone by these disciples, left alone in her grief at the tomb, disoriented by her grief, weeping. So why is she weeping? Um, Well, she has experienced catastrophic loss. Jesus is dead, and Jesus was everything to Mary Magdalene. Um, What do we know about Mary Magdalene? So Jean Vanier, who is a Catholic writer uh, and commentator on this passage, says that that what we know is that she was from this place called Magdala, which was where the Roman army encamped on the Sea of Tiberias, on the, the Sea of Galilee. So her name could be translated Mary of Magdala, which is Mary Magdalene, or Mary of the Roman camp. She was likely a prostitute who serviced the Roman army until Jesus came and found her. Luke 8 tells us that she was demon-possessed until Jesus found her and he drove the demons out. He rescued her. Jesus was her savior. Jesus, she says here, was, was her Lord, and now he's dead. And not only was he dead, but she had watched him be disgraced in his suffering and death. And now that the body is gone, she probably fears that somebody is doing something to it. They've taken the body to disgrace it further. They did it before, why wouldn't they do it again? And on top of that, she's been been abandoned by the disciples. First, they abandoned her and Jesus during his crucifixion. They all ran scared. It was just her and Jesus' mother and one other woman. And then here at the tomb, they run off, leaving her alone in her grief. Mary was weeping because she was experiencing catastrophic loss. So why do we weep? Um, Well, we weep for a number of reasons, right? Sometimes tears protect our eyes from smoke. Uh, Not sure why onions make us cry. They destroy me, onions do. Um, And also, also emotions, our tears are connected to our emotions. Our emotional tears are an overflow of what's going on inside of us. And researchers um, have said, and we're working to prove this, that there's actually an increased level of stress hormones in our tears, that we're actually releasing the stress that's inside of us when we cry. 
And we cry for lots of different reasons, right? For the good things, the bad things, the ugly things, the hard things. We cry for beauty and joy. We also cry for grief and suffering and loss. And we experience suffering and loss in lots of ways, right? We, we suffer mentally. Maybe you suffer in your fear or your anxiety, frustration, stress, physically, um, illness, sickness, injury, when our bodies don't work the way they're supposed to. And also, we suffer in response to the loss that we experience in the world around us. We suffer in response to the death and the disaster that we experience around us. Tears are how we respond to the reality of being broken people living in a broken and breaking world. And so what do you do with your loss? What do you do when you experience your suffering and your loss? Tim Keller, in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, he writes this. He says, in our secular culture, suffering is never seen as a meaningful part of life, but only as an interruption. With that understanding, there are only two things to do when suffering occurs. The first is to manage and lessen the pain. And the second is to look for the cause of the pain in order to eliminate it. Philosopher Charles Taylor adds to this that, In our culture, in Western culture, our society's highest goal is preventing suffering. So we're not so much wondering what to deal with it once we have it. We're spending all of our energy just trying to prevent it from happening. And Wake is a great example of this, right? Wake is a place where it's not okay to not be okay. And I know while the administration regularly emails you, telling you that it's working against this, telling you to get help when you're not doing okay, what I hear from you And what we heard a couple weeks ago from Annie Carper about this is that what you feel amongst your peers and with your professors is that if you are sad or suffering or grieving or anything other than fine, which by the way, fine is an acronym for freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. I'm fine. Um, If you're anything other than fine, you need to leave your sadness at home, right? Wake seems to only have room for two types of people, happy people and cynical people. Every religion in every culture tries to deal with the problem of suffering. Buddhism, Hinduism, fatalism, our own culture, secularism, everyone must deal with this question because everyone experiences loss. Everyone suffers. To suffering, Buddhism says accept it. Karma says pay it. Fatalism says heroically endure it. And secularism, which is our culture, says avoid it or fix it. Well, how does Christianity speak into our real suffering and loss? Well, look at Jesus' answer to this question, right? He doesn't provide a theological or philosophical answer to Mary's grief. Instead, he gives her himself in her grief. grief. Jesus reveals himself to you in his resurrection as the answer to your loss and the answer to the loss of the world. And he does this, we'll see in this passage, by revealing himself as your shepherd, as your savior, and as your sender. So first, Jesus reveals himself in his resurrection as your shepherd, So Mary's at the tomb, she's disoriented, and she looks in and she sees these angels. And they ask her, why are you weeping? And she says, I can't find my Lord, I can't find Jesus, they've taken him away. And then she turns around and there's Jesus standing in front of her, but she doesn't recognize him. She thinks he's the gardener, and she says, sir, did you take him away? Would you please give him to me? We see that she's frantic, like she's frantically searching for Jesus, she can't find him. And then he speaks one word to her, his shortest sermon. He says, Mary. He calls her by name and he finds her. She is found. She who is looking for Jesus is found by Jesus. She turns and she says, teacher, and then she collapses at his feet. 
In the midst of your suffering and loss, when you can't find God, he comes looking for you. He is your shepherd. In John 10, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he tells them that the sheep know the voice of the shepherd, that the shepherd will call his sheep by name and they will come to him. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He calls Mary by her name and she is immediately found by him. He is her shepherd. And then she turns and responds, teacher, Rabbani. And in that turn from hearing her name to calling him by his name, the world becomes a different place. I want you all to see this. Here's what I mean. A second before this turn, there is a woman in the deepest possible human despair. She is in the agonizing presence of unconquerable death. And a second after beginning this turn, there is a woman in the deepest possible human joy in the presence of the death-conquering central figure of history. Dale Bruner writes that at the midpoint of Mary's turn, human history almost imperceptibly moves from B.C. to A.D. The rush that must have come over this woman in her two-second turn is unimaginable. She's the first person ever to experience the personal presence of the risen Lord Jesus. And when she turned to him at this moment, human history took a turn to a responsible hope for the vincibility, not invincibility, but the vincibility of death. Death can be defeated. And to the, de- to the defeat of meaninglessness. Death, which was once final, has met its match. There is a reality. There is someone more final than death, and he is here with Mary as, his, as her shepherd. So in your loss, in your suffering, of the real suffering of your life, I ask you a question. Do you know the voice of Jesus, your shepherd, calling your name? Do you slow down enough to hear his voice, enough to listen to him calling you? Are you willing to listen? Friends, he knows you. He is alive, and he wants you to know him knowing you. He wants you to know him knowing you. Here's what I mean when I say that. Um, I want my children to know me knowing them. I care far less what they know about me as a preacher, far less what they know about me as a pastor, far less what they know about me as a crossfitter. Yes, that's a thing. Um, I far, care far less about this than them knowing me knowing them. Like What I want for them is when they're older and they're asked, what do you know about your dad? I want them to say the best answer they could ever give is my dad knows me and he loves me. Friends, how much more with Jesus? He wants you to know him knowing you. Jesus could have revealed himself to Mary any way he wanted and he chose to do it this way because he wants you to find yourself in her. Just like Mary, Jesus comes to get us. And Jesus calls you by name. Jesus wants you to know him knowing you as your shepherd. Jesus reveals himself in his resurrection to you as your shepherd and also as your savior. What did Mary see when she looked in the empty tomb? Look at verse 12 with me. She sees two angels in white sitting at the head and the foot of um, this platform of where Jesus had lain. And this is the only place in the gospel of John where angels show up. And if you were reading this passage as someone who was familiar with the Old Testament, if you were a Jew, hearing the story, reading this passage, seeing the empty tomb, you would immediately think of one thing. 
you would think of the mercy seat. Now, if you're unfamiliar with it, the mercy seat was the golden lid that was placed on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was the place where the Ten Commandments were kept. And on top of it, it had this gold lid that had two winged angels on top of it. It was in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, and behind a veil. And this is where the presence of the Lord was manifested. This is where God was and met with his people. It was where God promised to be with his people. And then once a year on Yom Kippur, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat and the sins of the people would be cleansed. Now that blood that was sprinkled had to come from a spotless, pure lamb. It was a ritual of cleansing, of washing away the sin of Israel. The blood takes away sin. It removes the debris of sin and guilt. Um, And something I think is so helpful for understanding this is that here in Winston-Salem, we have this really wonderful invention that I've never seen anywhere else that I've lived, which is like this giant truck that goes around in the winter and sucks up all the leaves. Have y'all seen this? It does it on campus. It does it around our neighborhood. And so when we blow our leaves in our yard, we blow them all to the street. And then this big leaf sucker truck just comes and just sucks them all up and they're gone. And it happened last week. And they sucked up every leaf that had fallen in October. The waste, the debris, the aesthetic plight, the drain water dirt, all of the junk that was in that pile of leaves, all of it gone. Just sucked it all up. The removal of all that junk. This is what the mercy seat did. It was the removal of sin. The place where the bloody body of Jesus was wrapped was now the mercy seat. And now, not just once a year, Atonement by a high priest, but for the whole world. And for anyone, even a woman of low standing, the first, who was the first evangelist to the apostles. Um, this is from uh, a pastor and professor named Stephen Nichols. This is what he writes about this. He says, now all we need to do is connect the dots. God desires to meet with his people. And the blood of the spotless lamb is the only means by which that meeting is made possible. The mercy seat of the Old Testament and the blood sprinkled upon it by the high priest prefigured Christ to come. It pointed to Christ to come. And Christ did come, and Christ did make the sacrifice, and Christ was raised from the dead. Make no mistake about it, these are historical realities. The tabernacle was real, the Ark of the Covenant was real, the mercy seat was real, the cross was real, the empty tomb was real, and a real woman stooped outside of that tomb and saw real angels. Friends, Christ is our mercy seat. There, in and through Christ, God meets us. The dots are connected. Let me stop here for a second. If you have never tasted the sweet, glorious peace of the forgiveness of sin, or if it's too much of a distant memory, um, let me plead with you. Jesus has made a way by his blood to experience the purest of all loves. And if you have never experienced this, please ask someone around you about it who has Jesus reveals himself in his resurrection as your savior through the empty tomb and then also through his ascension because not only has Jesus removed your sin not only has he washed you clean not only has he given himself as a sacrifice for your sin in your place but he has ascended to the father he has gone to heaven look at the end of verse 17 with me Jesus says I am ascending to my father and to your father to my God and your God 
Jesus, after his resurrection, ascended to heaven, and from there he sent his Holy Spirit so that all who believe in him can have Jesus as their big brother and be adopted into the family of his father. There's a historian named Larry Hurtado who teaches in Scotland, and he wrote a little book called Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? It's a great question. And here's what he says about it. He says that the earliest Christians were widely ridiculed, especially by the cultural elites. They were excluded from circles of influence and business. They were often persecuted and put to death. And Hurtado says that the Roman authorities were uniquely hostile to Christians amongst all other religious groups. Now, why is this? Well, it was expected that people would have their own gods, but that they would also be willing to show deference or honor to other gods as well. So nearly every home, every city, every professional guild, and the empire itself, the Roman empire itself, had its own gods. So you couldn't go to a meal at a large home or to any public event without being expected to show honor to the gods that were there, the, the gods of that particular place or that particular people. And to not do so, to not honor those gods would be highly insulting at the least to that house or the community. And it was also dangerous since it was thought that if you didn't honor those gods, you could bring the wrath of those gods. You could provoke the anger of those gods. And in particular, in the empire, in the Roman empire, it was treason to not honor those gods whose divine authority, on whose divine authority its legitimacy was based. So Christians, however, saw all these, these rituals and tributes as idolatry. They were committed to worship their God as he revealed himself in the scriptures exclusively. And while the Jews had the same view, they were generally tolerated since they were a distinct racial group. And their peculiarity was seen as a function of their ethnicity. Christianity, however, spread through all of the ethnic groups. And most of them were former pagans who suddenly after conversion, refused to honor other gods. And this created huge social problems. It made it disruptive or impossible for Christians to be accepted into most public gatherings. And if an individual in a family or a servant became a Christian, suddenly they refused to honor the gods of the household. Christianity spread was seen as subversive to the social order. It was a threat to the culture's way of life. Christians were thought to be too exclusive to be good citizens. But in light of this, enormous, this enormous social cost of being a Christian in the first three centuries. Why, why would anyone become a Christian? Why did Christian, Christianity grow so exponentially? What did it offer that was so much greater than the costs? Hurtado offers two reasons. He said, first, Christianity offered a direct personal love relationship with the creator. People around Christians wanted favor from the gods. Eastern religious, religion spoke about experiences of enlightenment, but an actual love relationship with God was something that no one else was offering. And second, Christianity offered assurance of eternal life. Every other religion offered some version of salvation through human effort, and therefore nobody could be sure of eternal life until a death. But the gospel gives us the basis for full assurance of salvation now because it's by grace and not works, and by Christ's work and not ours. And this is exactly what Jesus is offering you here in his resurrection. The empty tomb is the assurance of eternal life. Jesus has done everything that is necessary for you to be right with God. There is no more work to do. It is finished. Christianity is a decidedly historic religion. It all hinges on the resurrection. If someone had produced a body and could have proven that the resurrection was a, a hoax, Christianity would fall. 
it would be over. We could all go home. I'd need a new job. The past 2,000 years of the church would be a waste of time and energy. But no one has ever found a body, which means that not only is Christianity not a farce, but that you, you can have real assurance of eternal life with God because Jesus accomplished salvation for you. And also, the ascension offers you a direct, personal love relationship with the creator God. This is what's going on here. Jesus is the way to the Father. He's the bridge. He is the way to the Father. And when he ascended to the Father, he made way for an actual love relationship with God, with the creator who made you. Christianity is radically exclusive. It claims to be the only way you can know, it it claims that the only way that you can know God and be known by him is through Jesus Christ. It's radically exclusive, but it's also radically inclusive because it says that this relationship is available to everyone. Everyone who comes to Jesus with open hands, everyone who is willing to trust fall into his arms, he will take you. In his resurrection, Jesus reveals himself to you as your shepherd, your savior, and finally as your sender. So this passage begins with Mary's disorientation and loss, and then she spends time with the resurrected Jesus, and then at the end she is sent out to share the good news with the disciples. In verse 18, it says that she's she's sent to these disciples, and these are the same disciples who abandoned Mary when she was with Jesus during his crucifixion. These are the same disciples who abandoned Mary while she wept by the tomb alone before dawn. And that's who she's sent to. She's sent to those men with the good news of the resurrection. And as just as Jesus sent her, he sends you. And this is important. This is important. Because we live in a cultural moment when people are canceling each other. I want you to hear this. If you say that someone is canceled, what you're saying is you're saying they no longer matter and what happens to them should no longer matter. People are shunning each other and shaming each other and ruining each other's reputations, right? This is happening online. We're seeing it in in the news. It's happening in person. We as a culture are becoming so quick to set bridges on fire, so quick to cancel one another. And friends, Jesus sends you into your relationships, both the healthy ones and the fragile ones, with the good news of his resurrection, Friends, he is alive and he is your shepherd who knows you by name and loves you. He is your savior who has cleansed you of your sin and made his father your father. And he sends you to bring this reality into the lives of your neighbors. So you might be thinking, okay, John, how does being sent as a messenger of the good news of Jesus have anything to do with suffering and loss? Jesus knows and loves Mary in the midst of her suffering and loss. And he reveals to her in this way, as shepherd, as savior, and sender. Friends, the answer, to the, to the answer of the Christian faith to suffering and loss isn't an explanation. It doesn't attempt to resolve the mystery of tragedy. And in this life, you may never get an answer to your deep cries of why God and how long, O oh Lord, And this is because Christianity doesn't treat your loss as a puzzle to be solved. But it answers the mystery of suffering with the mystery of the faith, which is Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. The answer that Christianity gives to your suffering and loss is that death is not the final answer, but that in Christ there is real hope. Death is not the end of the story. Friends, your life 
in Christ will not be and cannot be a tragedy. It cannot be a tragedy because the tomb is empty. I just want to close with this. Um, this is one of the greatest scenes in The Lord of the Rings. Um, and it's the scene where everybody thinks that Gandalf is dead, who's a wizard. And uh, these hobbits are laying around and they're wallowing in their loss. Um, and Tolkien writes this. He says, but Sam lay back and started with open mouth and for a moment between be- bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment, for days upon days without count. And it fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known. Friends, Christianity does not explain away your loss, but in it, Jesus invites you to know him in his resurrection as your shepherd who knows you by name and loves you, as your savior who has cleansed you of your sin and secured relationship with the father and as your sender who sends you out with the good news of his resurrection for the suffering and grieving world. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for how you reveal yourself to us and Lord, I pray for my friends here tonight. Um, Lord, as they are experiencing their own loss and suffering and confusion over it. Lord, I pray that you would meet them, that um, they would hear you call their name, that you are one who, who seeks um, your sheep and know your name. Um, <coughs> Lord, would you help us, help us in our unbelief? We pray in Christ's name, amen.